0: Day Zero is the moment before company formation, when a founder decides to take the plunge, follow their dream, and commit to pursuing their vision of change. On Day Zero, you'll hear founders tell their story. From the initial idea, through reactions by critics and skeptics, setbacks and successes, we'll cover it all. Behind every company is a founder with ambition, goals, dreams, and wisdom to be shared. Let's explore them together.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Julie Yu, one of the general partners at Andreessen Horowitz, focused on digital health and health tech investing. And it is my pleasure today to be joined by Chris Severn, who is currently the CEO and co-founder of Turquoise Health. So hi, Chris. Welcome.
0: Hi, Julie. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you again.
1: Same here. So I'm going to start with a, a super basic question, or maybe not so basic, but who is Chris Severn? Tell us about yourself and what led you to the path of starting Turquoise Health.
0: Yeah, so that's a great question. My whole background is in this niche, sleepy part of healthcare called hospital revenue cycle. And so after college, I was looking to work at a consulting company as many business grads look to do. And I fell into this healthcare niche called hospital revenue cycle, did it for five or six years, had the inkling that there were some opportunities to work in revenue cycle on my own and start my own thing. And little did I know, it's hard to start something on your own. So I synced up with Adam Getchy, current co-founder and software guru extraordinaire of Turquoise and we started Turquoise last year and it's been a busy year and here we are.
1: You left out a minor detail, which is if you were to search for Chris Severin on the internet, you would find a video of you being the commencement speaker at your UC Berkeley graduation that talks about the fact that you were also a stand-up comedian. (laughs) Tell us about that.
0: I've had a lot of side careers In my 20s, like I tried a lot of different things, starting with the commencement speech at Berkeley, go Bears. And then it's kind of funny because you go straight from graduating college, feeling like you're the top of the world to being lowest on the totem pole at a large org. And then after leaving the consulting firm I was at, which is CloudMed, formerly Triage Consulting, I tried a bunch of things and a lot of fledgling entrepreneurial adventures that I don't even know what turns up when you Google that on the internet. And then, you know, I feel like I've failed forward and here we are.
1: Apparently you were also the top salesperson at the sports authority for one of your summer jobs. So highly impressive sales skills there. So now you've started Turquoise Health. Tell us just the one-liner on what Turquoise Health is and what you all do and provide to the market.
0: Yeah, so Turquoise is in the price transparency business. So before January 1st of this year, it was impossible to know the price of healthcare, especially hospital care, until a federal law permitted the prices of healthcare to be posted online. And so Turquoise is building towards a future where we have savvy consumers of healthcare and they know a full value proposition in advance of choosing where to get healthcare services. And so we started with building out some data pipelines and sharing that data um, to the world this year. We're building some solutions that help providers and payers negotiate the new cost of care.
1: So this, this whole concept of price transparency is one that's been making the headlines for the last couple of years. It's obviously been a mainstream topic that largely driven by regulatory change and policies that have been going into place. Is this an idea that you had many, many years ago that you thought was inevitable? Or you know, how much were you influenced by all of the changes that were happening in the macro environment within healthcare?
0: Yeah, it's really odd because working in hospital revenue cycle. Really it's the most boring thing to talk about at parties. Like people would ask me in my twenties, like, what do you do? I'd try to say, you know, I find hospital underpayments. I mine hospital claims and people's (laughs) eyes glaze over. But in the know, you see these contracts and you see what Blue Cross is paying XYZ health system, you see how much money this is. And as a 23 year old analyst, you're like, this is huge. This is a lot of money flowing through these scanned PDF contracts that are secret that I only have access to because I work for this consulting firm. And fast forward, Adam and I were doing some machine learning for hospital revenue cycle under a different company. And this law hit that required hospitals to publish their standard charges, which in 2019, the term was charge master. So the hospital just published their list price. And that is the price that hospitals charge, but really nobody pays unless you're a foreign dignitary Um, or a very rich uninsured person. And, you know, they smell blood in the water and Adam and I went through this side project of aggregating all these hospital charge masters. We made this thing called a national charge master database in 2019. I don't really remember why we know that nobody really pays list prices, but it was just fun. And um, we didn't do much with it. And then in late 2019, they updated the rule to say, Hey, our definition of standard charges was too limiting, and we want hospitals to publish more. And so then they defined under the Trump administration that standard charges means the negotiated rate for all items and services at a hospital. And that's when Adam and I just said, whoa, 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 whoa. this is huge, because if this is true, all of these PDFs that we're looking at will, in effect, become public, and we know how much of the cost of care flows through these, these negotiated rates. So that's when the price transparency path just felt illuminated in front of us.
1: And you guys clearly leaned into that and essentially pivoted from being sort of a small consulting shop doing probably revenue driven growth and, you know, not raising outside capital to all of a sudden being a fast growth VC-backed company. And in full disclosure, I should have said earlier that we are very happy investors in, in Turquoise Health here at Andreessen. You are? Um, <laughs> check your cap table. Oh, yeah. I always used to say to my employees when I was a founder that you know we should all recognize that the percentage of companies that get started in any given year that are actually VC-backed is a very 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 small percentage right It's a single digit percentage of the overall business creation opportunity within the US on an annual basis and yet because we're sort of in the zeitgeist seeing all these you know hot companies being covered by media you tend to think that that's the end all be all way for companies to, to get started and so you made that transition from one to the other but you know presumably there there probably was a path for you to remain you know non-venture backed revenue bootstrapped and you know continue to to kind of do what you were doing What was kind of your decision calculus in making that switch?
0: Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And it's still really fresh. That's why this podcast is kind of fun because we were having these conversations a year ago. So yes, Adam and I had what you would call like a lifestyle business, sort of a consulting business, building machine learning workflows for hospital revenue cycle. We were always looking for that platform play of like, Hey, let's scale something rather than selling our hourly services. And Adam and I, first of all, really, really like backing up a bit. We enjoy working with one another. He and I met here in San Diego. We went to lunch like 200 days in 2017 before we ever talked about work. Um, And so Adam and I had that comfort working together before we started working on our Costa, our former company. And there was this moment where, you know, Adam's so prolific at building software that we had some value in our initial price transparency play last year, helping hospitals comply with the rule, the public turquoise health website, where it crossed our mind like, hey, there's a small version of this where we build a bit of the infrastructure of price transparency, and maybe we hire a few employees, um, have some fun and maybe we get acquired. It's, you know, everybody's like, end all be all at that stage. So the first pitch was always Adam. It was like, Adam, you know, he's a little bit older than me, um, so I'm like, Young, ready to just really push here. And he's had a career, a really successful career. And so my first pitch was, Hey, can I convince you that there's enough opportunity here and enough good to be done here that this is worth doubling down on? And so about a year ago, we were having those conversations. Life was pretty simple when it was just the, you know, the two of us and a few other folks at the consulting company. And I think ultimately you just start having so much fun and then you start realizing that. We really chose good timing for this price transparency business. And a lot of the legislation was going our way that, you know, either I eventually weathered him down or he saw that, hey, this is really fun. We have some potential here. Let's see where it goes. So eventually, I think I he was the first person I convinced and then we really went for it
1: good that he was the first since he was your co-founder, so yes. <laughs> well done there. So it sounds like it was a combination of sort of intrinsic feeling on your part that, you know, this was something that was worth going big on. But you also had the benefit of the pull from the market to show that, you know, there was the opportunity to actually deploy capital in a much more aggressive way against the business opportunity, which is, um, you know, kind of more than you could ask for. Amidst all this, you also had this crazy backdrop of the pandemic. And you guys, I believe, actually started the company during the pandemic officially. Yeah. Was that true? What was that like? And how much did that factor into your conversations? And you know, how did that either help or hinder your ability to explore this potential path?
0: Yeah, I mean, looking back on the last year, the pandemic really played to our advantage. So, first of all, you know, disclosure. You know, Adam's from San Diego. He lives in London. And so Adam and I have used for the last two years, we're really used to collaborating across the ocean. And that means we're really good at having regular check-ins, communicating over Slack, documenting things. We felt very organized for a small company before Turquoise. And so we already had this like small remote culture that was just ready to start Turquoise during the pandemic. As we got into rolling out like the, the core of Turquoise, so early 2021, we were able to scale up pretty fast because we were able to use uh, talent that was remote. Um, and we were also able to have customer calls and investor calls just all over Zoom. And so I think I asked you guys in the spring, I was like, would this have typically, would I have like flown up and you know sat across from you at a table mm-hmm. pre-2021, And I I think the answer sometimes is yes. And so to us, it allowed us to get going much faster and maybe have customer conversations with legitimate customers way sooner than, you know, they would have let us in the door if we were just a couple people flying up to meet them at their health system.
1: Yeah. So to that point, you know, San Diego, there's actually, I think, a pretty robust biotech you know, seen in terms of of startup companies, but not necessarily in the top three list of companies you think about for, you know, again, VC-backed tech companies. How did you even make your way into the network? How did you find the first set of investors that you wanted to talk with? Was there a local network that you tapped into? And what were some of the tactics that you implemented to actually, you know, get
0: plugged in? This is just so interesting to look back on, because I've never, we've talked about this, but like, I've never personally, had this in my roadmap that I wanted to start a large VC-backed company. I knew I wanted to start something. Adam and I just always feel a little creative. And we do have that entrepreneurial vibe, but not the fundraising vibe. And so for me, this time a year ago or maybe 14 months ago, I went to who I knew. And so I knew some folks in the revenue cycle world um, that have had a career and do some angel investing. And I created a deck that felt totally, It was. it was literally, you know, drawn at first. And then I hired a designer to like turn my drawings into a deck. And I just pitched folks that maybe would do some angel investing. And then that traveled around a bit. And then we did a small pre-seed fundraise. And so that was my first foray into like, who do I know? There were a few folks in San Diego that I talked to, but at the time COVID was just, you know, anyone across the U.S. uh, that would take my call. There were a few times where our angel pitched, like bled into the traditional investor world. And it was just those natural connections of like, Hey, you know, you should talk to, you know, Jay at a 16 Z or, Hey, I know this friend that works at this VC where we started actually being able to run this by traditional institutional investors. And so it was very natural and it was pretty much, I started like with the node that I knew, and then I kept pulling on threads until I got more calls.
1: Amazing. When you started the process, if you can recall, what were, what were some of your initial criteria that you think you would have articulated at the time of like what you were looking for in your investor and, and how did that morph as you got more and more meetings?
0: This was an interesting one because, and this is where Adam would be, it'd be interesting to hear his perspective because I pitched everything with like a double bottom line. So I'd say, hey, we want to do this price transparency thing and we want to be loyal to the economics, the future economics of healthcare. That means that we care about the prices of healthcare going down. We care about simplification of how rates are quoted and we'll say no to things. So we'll say no to a customer who wants us to do this. We'll say no to folks that want us to support the status quo. And I went into those investor conversations with that as my like boundaries, I guess. And so there were a few investors that said, hey, sounds like you guys really know this underpayment space and the mining of hospital claims to find payment anomalies. Can you just do that? And it was tempting because they would say, we'll give you money if you just do that. But this price transparency thing, that law will never last or that'll never go through. We were raising last year when the law hadn't officially gone through. And so I think we said no to a few that were trying to pull us in this old direction where we already were at. That's when it was really great to have Adam, on my team there to be like, okay, we're committed to this price transparency thing because I don't think in a year we'd be able to sleep at night if we just try to capitalize off of what we've already been doing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's super important, I think. And, and something that a lot of first-time founders probably sort of underappreciate is just to what degree you should and need to have conviction to go with investors who truly believe in your mission and also trust that even if your plans change, that you know they'll stick by you versus sort of overlay their own point of view on what you should be doing. That's great that you guys stuck to your guns, and and clearly it's worked out. Let's double-click now on the business and what it's been like to build Turquoise. One of the interesting aspects of of how you guys are positioning yourselves in the market, and, and really hard aspects, I would imagine, is you're kind of like the Switzerland for payer, provider, government, patient. Historically, one of the reasons why price transparency has been such a sort of third rail issue is because of the power dynamics and the information asymmetry between all those players and you know here turquoise comes along and says you know what we're just going to sit in the middle shine a light on all this and um essentially almost broker relationships in a in an independent way between all these different stakeholders that's got to be really really hard to do and i'm hard pressed to even think of any examples where a player has been able to successfully execute that without ultimately ending up looking like an evil middleman in some way shape or form What has that been like? Is it that bad? You know, are there things that you think have fundamentally changed in the market in the last couple of years that actually make it possible to do that today?
0: What we've seen with this pricing data is that it's inevitable. It's coming onto the market. It's going to be publicly distributed. And what we can help with providers and payers is get ahead of it and say, hey, we'll at least be a mirror and show you your own reflection in the market. We can't alter the data or tell a different narrative than what the data is saying. Aside from maybe if you, you messed up and you actually have typos in the data or you didn't calculate it right, we could help you fix those. And so as long as we're coming to providers with that level of honesty, uh, and you know, we're selling to providers and payers. So if we're going to providers and payers with that level of honesty, they generally get it now because they've gone through the stages of denial with this price transparency rule that they're like, all right, show us the data. And it feels a little bit like this analogy I just thought of is when I would go on like backpacking trips for three days and I haven't seen myself in the mirror, and then you get in the car and pull the thing down and you're like, oh my gosh, that's what I look like. There's a little bit of that shock value um, to providers that have never seen their data uh, against other providers in their region, or they've never even like seen their own rates really displayed cleanly in front of them. And so we've just been very honest with our customers that y- you can succeed in a price transparent market, but first you've got to accept the narrative of how it is right now. And then we also meet them where they're at. And because we offer compliance solutions and we help them post their data, we help them with patient estimate solutions. We can also acknowledge that this is hard. It's not very easy to represent the negotiated rates, cash rates, and list prices of all items and services in your health system. It's very difficult. And so as long as we don't come to providers and pretend like we know better than them or that this is easy and they're dropping the ball. Um, we've ge- we, It's generally been receptive. The other thing is that providers and payers adapt software quicker when there's a compliance and regulatory need. And so optics aside or discomfort aside, most of our customers have come to us accepting that this just has to happen.
1: You've mentioned a couple of times, Chris, along that vein that, you know, you guys are very principled about, you know, who you choose to work with how you choose to position yourself how you think about your value proposition i presume that you've probably had to say no to some people on the basis of a misalignment of why they want to partner with you and and what they would use the data for has that been the case what's your general philosophy on you know early customer traction and you know having the conviction to say no because when you're a startup you know the one thing you're desperate for is commercial business and and logos, and yet, you know, you have to make these hard decisions sometimes for the long run. So how have you approached that? And, And what are some examples if you can share of hard decisions that you've had to make along those lines?
0: There are some nefarious pricing schemes in healthcare, and we've had, of course, not naming names, we've had some organizations come to us that are very interested in how to uphold the status quo of all the complex algebra that supports current managed care negotiations. We've also had some folks come to us, some large orgs that are like, we will not contribute to the ecosystem, we are not publishing our data, but we want, want to learn about our competitive environment. So it's basically like, you know, me being a lurker on Yelp, reading restaurant reviews but never contributing a review. And so those are times that we have pause and we might not prioritize that prospect or or customer or we might just, you know, be blunt with them and say, "Hey, we actually really support price transparency." We think it's a good thing for patients. And so here's what we would do if we were your vendor for this, but here's what we would not do. I think we've lost some customers over that for sure. What we're also trying to be cognizant of is who will succeed in a price transparent environment. And I have theories that it's you know payers that have clear benefit design and clear cost share for patients and it's providers who have a clear value prop. So whether it's access, quality, price, brand, or some combination of those four things, we do evaluate our customers and say, hey, you know, if you are a affordable hospital with high quality and you're playing ball with price transparency, we really want to work with you. If you're obfuscating your data or you're actively fighting the price transparency law in courts, like you're probably not the right fit for us. It it has been a bit of a, customer segmentation journey this year to figure out who should be our flagship customers in year one
1: yeah well good for you for having that point of view and actually articulating you know a prioritization framework because i think the thing that we often hear perhaps the most frequently amongst early stage company employees is that hunger and desire for transparency and clarity on how to balance the millions of opportunities that typically companies like you have in front of them so having that top-down explicit point of view is, is probably super helpful. And to that point, you know, curious to pivot into the talent side of things and, you know, what it's been like to build a company from two lenses. One is, you know, during the pandemic, how has hiring changed in terms of your approach, how you think about geography, how you think about general policies that you've implemented on your team to embrace and lean into this new normal in the pandemic. And then also, you know, once you announced that you had raised this venture capital, how did that also change the nature of, you know, folks reaching out to you? Did it make it super easy for you guys to attract talent or perhaps even harder because now, you know, you're now competing with a different class of companies. From those two lenses, tell us more about how you've approached building your org.
0: The geographic side of this, because Adam and I have always been distributed, from day one, we just knew, you know, this will probably be a distributed company. And now we've hired in eight or nine states. And if you're listening to this and you're looking for a job and you're in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, You know, you wouldn't be our first employee from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And so we're really interested now to attract talent from all across the U.S. and abroad. We have, as an org, really valued face-to-face in-person time, COVID permitting. Because we're still small enough, we've done quarterly on-sites where we all get together in one place. And that's been really helpful for team building. Post-fundraising, we were really excited to announce our fundraising because In the beginning, before you've really announced any round, it's hard to tell someone's side project that they might work on part-time or they're a solo founder and there's no substance to it from something that will have staying power in healthcare. And so once we announce funding, I think to our customers, it announced that we will be here for years to come. And then to folks that were considering applying, they really want that early stage startup vibe, but they don't want day one. They don't want the no funding company that could go bankrupt in six months. And so the moment that we announced funding, recruiting became a lot easier. I wouldn't say that it's easy by any means. There's, so, there's a high caliber of health tech startups right now that I respect and we're all sort of fighting for the same talent pool. But for us, we've been really true to this mission of empowering consumers of healthcare. And you know, for engineers and designers and product people, it's like, this is what we're doing. This is really easy to talk about with your parents and your friends that in three or four years, when someone can prepay for their elective surgery without thinking about it, that you had a hand in that. And so I think that's been helpful for us. We hired a people person, I think employee number eight, which was also super helpful. And now, you know. We're just trying to grow the team just like everybody else.
1: Yeah. You must have learned a ton in a very short period of time, just uh, moving as quickly as you guys have been moving and growing as quickly as you've been growing. How do you, as a leader, like find time to reflect on those learnings. Because I, I I always find you to be extremely thoughtful, Chris, when we have conversations about what's going well, what's not going well, etc. I don't remember ever, ever having time to think about myself when I was building my company in that in that thoughtful fashion, which I think was to a detriment because it is always so valuable to kind of sit back and make sure that you're sort of reviewing the right things and, and taking the, the, the right learnings. What's that been like for you? What's your overall kind of approach and and philosophy to take care of yourself as a leader that you've you've learned or you know, perhaps brought along with you from your, your past life?
0: Yeah, so first of all, I took a vacation three weeks ago for you know a week, went to Hawaii, and it was wonderful. And I think a lot of early stage startup founders might not let themselves take the foot off the gas in that first year or two. I've noticed I truly perform better when I'm balanced and when I'm sleeping right. And so there are things that I still do to maintain my internal homeostasis in the past year that I haven't given up starting a company. The other thing is, you know, I got engaged in January. I live with my fiance and then Adam and I have really been very honest with one another ever since we started working together three or four years ago. And so I've got my daily, you know, combined with other folks at Turquoise and Friends, I've got my daily sort of support team that keeps me in check and keeps me balanced. And also they remind me that turquoise is really important, but there's a lot of other important things going on. The pandemic also puts that in perspective. And so a healthy dose of perspective has really gotten me through this year, which I wouldn't say this year has been easy, but without those sort of support folks in my life, it would be much harder. So that answers your question a little bit. And then the other thing is I just, I do make time to reflect on myself. I I think COVID generally slowed my life down as well. Like I'm still not traveling that much. My commute is from the living room to here. And so I have time for walks. I have time for weekends um, to some extent. And so there's an alternate world where starting a startup I had to travel a ton and just be commuting and all that, that maybe I wouldn't have had time to stay sane.
1: What advice, Chris, would you give to other folks who are thinking about starting companies? And I would say expressly, considering whether or not they should raise venture capital.
0: The first caveat is that I've been doing this for a little over a year. Like I mentioned to you, I don't want to, you know, wax philosophical. Like I know exactly how to do all this, but I do have some pointers from the past year. The first is that, you know, for a long time, I tried to dip my toe in the water with starting a business without fully committing. And all the good stuff with turquoise has happened once Adam and I really went all in on it. And so you know, if you find yourself in a situation where you're thinking about starting a company um, and you've vetted the idea against several people and it's not just your own personal echo chamber that thinks it's a good idea and it's time to start, maybe you leave your job or you've saved up some money or maybe you haven't, I would just dive fully in um, rather than trying to moonlight on the side because then you vet your experiment much faster and you can move on from a failure much faster. If, if you just dive in. So that's the first piece of advice. The second, raising VC money. I truly only did it when we were really convinced of the market size and the opportunity. If you're not totally convinced of your ability to execute and the market size, it might not be a VC backed endeavor. Maybe the VC will notice as well, but I know it's a very founder friendly market right now. So there are some times where the founder may be able to convince the VC that the market's bigger than it is. And then you might, I would assume, get in over your skis, as you say, and wish that you had stayed a four to five percent lifestyle business. And so we only raise money once we were fully convinced of the side of the market, the opportunity and our ability to, to execute.
1: That's a great point and something that, you know, certainly as an ex-founder myself, I always try to make sure that the people pitching us understand what it means to get on the hamster wheel, so to speak, with a firm of our scale and size and what, what expectations come with that. Because I yeah. think, again, as you just stated, it's something that you know perhaps is underappreciated what those expectations look like once you get on board, so.
0: Yeah, and one other thing I'd add as well is that if I had tried to start this five years ago, I don't think I knew myself or I was strong enough with my subject matter expertise, like revenue cycle, to start a business like this as much as I would have wanted to. And then Adam's just an amazing software engineer. So he's probably always had the chops to do this, but. I would also, you know, look within yourself and be like, Hey, am I ready? Am I an expert in my field where I can really command attention for my idea and get something going? And when I hire employees, they trust my decisions. And so maybe you're just super convincing. You don't need the subject matter expertise, but I found that that really helped.
1: Excellent advice. Well, Chris, it's a shame that you and I didn't meet at a cocktail party earlier because I love talking about revenue cycle at cocktail parties. So but um, but thanks so much for spending the time with us here. One last very, very important question. Where does the name Turquoise Health come from?
0: Yeah, so turquoise is a street that my fiance lived on when we came up with turquoise and it ends in San Diego at the water and the water is very it's the clearest water in San Diego. You can see the bottom. So I always pictured. The ocean, seeing the bottom, transparency, prices, happens that it's not the easiest word to spell. And then someone let us know well after the founding of turquoise that it's an opaque mineral. And so, you know, transparency of the gem is not there, but uh, we like to say we're removing opacity from healthcare. So um, yeah, that's where turquoise came from.
1: Very poetic and profound.
0: (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Not a mineral.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thanks again so much, Chris, for sharing your insights. I'm sure they'll be super valuable to the founders out there who are listening.
0: Of course. Thanks for chatting. Until next time. This is Day Zero, a podcast by Think Media. Subscribe to Day Zero on your favorite podcasting app or platform.